As we look into this text this morning, what we find, I think, is a, a twofold question. One question is assumed. It's implied on the front end. And the reason it's implied is because we've learned about it before in Revelation, actually repeatedly up to this point. And then the other one flows out of that assumed question, that implied question. So the, the, the implied question is this. What does the Christian response look like in the midst of a world that would pressure us to deny Christ and to be unfaithful to his word? All right. So in the midst of a world that would say, what we should be doing is looking at the word and say, well, yeah, maybe the Bible says that, but I, I think I know better. So the world pressures us like that. What's the Christian response? And what we know is that the Christian response is faithfulness to the word. Christian response is, yes, this is what the word says. This is what God has spoken, and so this is what I believe. And actually, in Revelation, we've talked about how there's more black and white. In Re it's a much more black and white book. There's not a lot of gray. It's purposefully written that way. This is how apocalyptic literature was written. And so, that's the Christian response. And the un unfaithfulness to Christ, denying Christ... That's actually the non-Christian response. So that's the first question. What is the Christian response? And the Christian response is faithfulness to the word. But the question now that our text addresses, assuming that that's the case, is how is the Christian to do this? And by what strength? What enables, what actually leads to Christians being able to do this? Because I... We have to acknowledge on the front end, this is not an easy task. It's human nature to actually do the opposite. Let me explain what I mean. A couple years ago, Amy and I had the opportunity to get away from home, spend time, just the two of us, in Chicago together. And while we were there, uh, we caught a showing of Hamilton. And one of the themes that I remember, remember being clearest to me, like it was, it was a night I felt like of contrasts. So first of all, leaving the darkness of the CIBC theater and under the bright lights of Monroe Street, I was also thinking of this contrast. It's like the main contrast of this production between its two main characters, the protagonist, Alexander Hamilton, obviously, and the antagonist, Aaron Burr. And most people, you know, are aware of this strange fact of American history uh, of a sitting vice president getting into a duel with um, a former cabinet member and shooting and killing him, right? So we all know of this, like, strange fact. But few are actually aware of what led up to it. So based largely on Chernow's biography of Hamilton, the show, the production, really hones in on the fuel that fed that fire, so to speak. You know, and what fed the fire? It was actually the contrast between these two men. And whether it's an overstatement of the actual history or not, right? Um, it's a Broadway production, so I think we can assume that in many ways it does do that. Whether or not it does, the contrast in the production itself is actually quite interesting, worth exploring, and I would say historical in many ways. So, because here you have Alexander Hamilton, someone who from day one leads out of conviction. He believes something, and he makes his beliefs known without any hesitations. Like, nobody's guessing what Alexander Hamilton believes about stuff. Nobody has to kind of, like, pry him or twist his arm to, like, get his true feelings out, his beliefs out. He believes it, he makes it known, he fights for it. And he's actually, whether it's in his childhood or um, in the Revolutionary War or in his political life afterwards, he's really willing to lay everything on the line for it. 
And, and it turns out a lot of his success, like that conviction, he leads by conviction, that conviction drives him forward, and a lot of his success is a result of leading by conviction, because it turns out people want to follow conviction. But then you have Aaron Burr, always afraid to share his opinions, advising Hamilton when he first meets him to talk less, smile more, don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. Right? Telling George Washington he admires how he keeps firing on the British from a distance. Right? Not really taking a stance either way. Should we be firing on them? Should we not? Should we be engaging? Right? Not really wanting to take a stance. And finally, when he refuses to support Hamilton in defending the U.S. Constitution to the public with a series of essays because he's afraid of the backlash of public opinion if he takes too strong of a stance for the Constitution, against the Constitution... Hamilton just erupts on him and he says, Burr, we studied and we fought and we killed for the notion of a nation we now get to build. For once in your life, take a stand with pride. I don't understand how you stand to the side. I could have been Hamilton. Um, and Burr responds. He says, I'll keep all my plans close to my chest. I'll wait here and see which way the wind will blow. And so you get this contrast between a man who really makes progress because he's actually functioning according to his convictions versus this man who doesn't gain any respect anywhere he goes. He actually sees unhealthy environments following him everywhere he goes. Why? Because he just doesn't give his opinion. He doesn't think people will follow him if he does. So he waits to see where public opinion settles before he takes a stance and then he kind of takes a stance. Even then, it's, it's pretty squishy. Like people toward the end of the story, they're deciding on this vote for president between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. And the people are like, we don't really know what Aaron Burr thinks about anything. And so Hamilton kind of chimes in on the public debate. And he says, look, I was on the other side of the political divide from Jefferson on everything. Like we fought about everything. I think he takes the opposite side on me then me on every single issue, from me on every single issue. But he says, at least I know that he has beliefs. At least I know where he stands. He says, Jefferson has beliefs, Burr has none, right? And, and that in the end proves to be why he loses the election. And of course, he blames Hamilton. He doesn't have the eyes to see, he doesn't have the ears to hear the real reason. He just thinks, man, and everywhere along the line, Hamilton was there. Well, yeah, but everywhere along the line, he was squishy. And all of that prompts a deeper question, because if Burr and men like Burr don't want to lead out of conviction, but they still desire to lead, that is to say, if they still have this desire to get into positions of power and leadership, but they don't have underlying conviction as their motive, the question is, why exactly do they want to be in leadership? Like, what is their motive exactly? And we get a picture of that in this contrast in Hamilton, in this song in which Burr finally admits why he wants to run for office, Though he doesn't take that strong of a stance, you know, getting to office is really the end game. He's willing to do whatever it takes to get there. Why? He wants to be in the room where it happens. That's the song that he sings. He wants to be in the room where decisions are made. He wants to be an insider. He's terrified of being an outsider. He's terrified of being labeled as someone who's on the wrong side of things. Sure, he wants to be rich. Sure, he wants to be powerful. But the way... That manifests, you know, more than anything else, he cares about what people think of him. His desire is to be in what C.S. Lewis refers to in his writings as 
the inner circle. Doesn't want to be an outsider, wants to be on the inside. Lewis writes, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. The desire to be inside, the terror of being outside. The, the great fear of what others might think of you. The great fear of being without power. The great fear of being without influence. That's still a primary terror today. It's the fear of man. The need to be recognized by the world in a certain way. The drive for the world to see you in a certain way. And it's that contrast that Lewis describes, that we, that we see, I think, in Hamilton, that we also find in the text this morning. In fact, in Revelation 3, 7 to 13, we see five contrasts. And all of them ultimately show us the ultimate answer to the problem that Lewis is writing about. Okay, so that's our outline for this morning, for those of you who like outlines. Five contrasts in Revelation 3, 7 through 13 that will answer the problem of the fear of man. It will answer the problem of this desire to be seen and recognized by the world in a certain way. Because apparently this church that Jesus addresses now has found something of an answer to that problem. So let's dive in together. First we see, first contrast, the holy and true versus the unholy and untrue. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. The holy and true Versus the unholy and untrue. So Philadelphia, 30 miles roughly southeast of Sardis, the text that we read last week. The city was in an ideal location for commerce. In fact, it was known as the gateway to the east. All right? It was where a lot of influential people lived because it was like the entryway of business in the Greek-speaking world in this area of Asia Minor. But along with being a gateway into commerce, it was also becoming a gateway into what was known, as we've talked about it before, the imperial cult, okay, emperor worship. And actually, by the 5th century, people would call this city of Philadelphia Little Athens because of its many temples and shrines and cults across the city. So a lot of influential people live here. A lot of powerful people live here. A lot of people who have the ear of the culture and who really help to drive the culture. And so in the opening, it's no mistake that Jesus refers to himself as the Holy One. The true one. See, for the first century reader, and really it doesn't matter which of the churches in Asia Minor would have been even reading these words. For the first century reader, he's, what he's doing is he's contrasting his nature with the nature of competing ones that claim to be holy and true. So, for instance, he's contrasting his own nature with the emperor. Where the emperor has been historically unfaithful, Jesus is faithful. Where the emperor's words and deeds have been unholy, to say the least. It's an understatement. They've led to unholy terror. Jesus is the holy and perfect one. Where the emperor claims to be the God-man while actually not being God at all, Jesus is the true God-man who demonstrated the truthfulness of that claim by his own death and resurrection for his people. He still lives. When the emperor dies, he will stay dead. Where the emperor has no ultimate authority, 
Though it seems like he has authority now, he has a seat that will be taken from him. And any authority he has has just been given to him by God. Jesus has ultimate and all and true authority over everything what he says goes, and in the end he wins. And I do think this text means all of that, all of that. But there's something else going on here other than a a comparison to emperor worship. There's another, maybe even more central comparison happening here. Because here we see Jesus referring to himself as the one who can open and shut, someone who has the key of David. Why is David's name invoked? What does this term mean, the one who opens and shuts? Well, just like we saw in Smyrna a few weeks ago, there's a large contingent of Jewish people in the synagogue who've essentially shut out Christians in the synagogue. They've taken those who claim Christ and they've thrown them out as heretics. right? And a heretic would have been someone who's unholy and does not proclaim the truth. And so Jesus comes and he says, wait, you're throwing out people who proclaim my name as heretics, as unholy and untrue, but I'm the holy and true son of David, the holy and true Messiah come to save. He's saying that while the Jews believe that they've thrown out the Christians, they've thrown them outside of God's presence by barring the doors to the synagogue for those Christians, Jesus is the only one who has the power to open a door to his presence, to open a door to the kingdom, or to shut someone out of it. So this first contrast is really intended to be an encouragement to the church, to show them where true power actually lies, the holy and true versus the unholy and untrue. And actually we come to see they need this encouragement very much. Because second we see a contrast between those with little earthly power and those with uh, much earthly power. Those with little earthly power and those with much earthly power. Verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. So, pretty much starting every section of text where Jesus addresses one of these seven churches, he begins with this phrase, I know your works. Oftentimes what follows is a rebuke. But here in Philadelphia, it's far from that. He's seen their works, and they're actually remarkable. They're striking. This church has kept Jesus' word. They've been faithful to the word. They've, They've not done as the Nicolaitans have done, as we've seen in the weeks past, and compromised the word of Jesus to conveniently mean whatever the surrounding culture is saying at that particular time. They've not denied his name. As we'll see, there would have been a lot of tangible, first century, earthly benefit to that kind of denial. You know, so like like we saw two weeks ago, first century believers, they could lose their business for proclaiming what the scriptures said. They could be thrown out of trade guilds and it would have made it impossible for them to incorporate their lives into business practices in the first century. They could lose their position in society. They could lose friends and family. They could lose respect of other citizens. They'd be viewed as narrow-minded troublemakers. And if if they were Jewish, if they were involved in the synagogue, they could lose that community too. They could be tossed out and blacklisted as heretics. And just like we saw in Pergamum, they could even lose their very lives. They could lose their lives. People were dying. 
And yet if they denied Jesus, and, and really a denial of Jesus in the first century wasn't saying they didn't believe in him, it was just saying he's one of many gods. Right? Like, the Roman uh, imperial cult, they weren't saying they had to say Jesus wasn't a god. They weren't saying that you had to say Jesus wasn't divine. He was just one of many gods. If they would just do that, if they would just do that, they'd get their lives back. They'd, they could inherit the world. They'd get slaps on the back from culture instead of being stabbed in the back. They could be welcomed into friendships and synagogues as opposed to being shut out. They could be seen as wise and elite by culture instead of crazy. And the reason it's so striking that despite all this, they remained faithful to the word, to Jesus' word, is because they're this small church with very little power when taking any kind of earthly influence. Like if you were a church that was larger and that actually spoke into civil authority and you know, had more influence, maybe it'd be a little bit easier. There wouldn't be as much risk, but they had no authority. They had no power. They were this small, uh, from earthly standpoint, powerless church. You know, they didn't have influence, so you'd think they'd attempt to get it any way they, they could. They didn't have power, so you'd think they'd be willing to make compromises to achieve what they did not have. That's what we were seeing in other churches that Jesus is addressing, and yet... The true contrast actually is between those who have power and those without. But Jesus flips the script here. He turns it around on them. Jesus tells them that actually they are the powerful ones. Because he's set before them an open door that nobody is able to shut. What does this mean? Well, so the Apostle Paul uses this phrase, open a door, in kind of a missional sense. Like he, he often talks about opening a door to the word. And what it, what it essentially means is opening a door for evangelism. But I don't, that's not how John uses it, and it's not how he uses it here in Revelation. I think what this is is a, a door that's open to his kingdom, open to his presence. We can know this because that's the way he uses this word as we progress through Revelation, and we'll see that together. But also because of the specific context in Philadelphia and countless first century churches in which believers have found themselves shut out of synagogues by those who claim to be able to keep these believers from the kingdom of God. So the message was... We'll shut you out of God's presence. We'll shut you out of God's kingdom by shutting you out of the synagogue. And yet God says that because they've been faithful, he set for them an open door. An open door to his presence that no one is able to shut. They're the ones with power. They have but little power, but they have an open door to the kingdom of God that no one can shut. And we'll actually see that because they're in union with the one who set that door before them, that they share in his authority. They share in his power as well. This is very much like what Jesus said to Smyrna. And actually, this, the text in Smyrna that Justin preached a few weeks ago runs really parallel with this text, but it's really familiar language. When, when Jesus tells Smyrna they're in poverty, most likely because of the repercussions of following Christ, he says, you're in poverty, but then he follows it up by saying, you're actually rich. You know, Jesus says here, you have little power, yet you have my power. You know, you have little riches, yet you have my riches, which are far greater, far greater. Like an infinite God laughs from heaven at the claims of power and riches on an earthly level. Right? They're far greater. So, so you're in poverty, but you have my riches. You have little power, but you have my power. It's not unlike what happens in my favorite childhood movie, Aladdin where the princess leaves the palace. She dresses like a commoner. 
She's treated harshly by the world around her. She's perceived by shop owners, those with much influence, as one who has very little power. People turn their nose up at her. She's mocked. She's despised by those with power. People make all kinds of assumptions about her, but she doesn't, she doesn't care what they think. Obviously, she doesn't care what they think. She has an open door to the palace where her father lives, the sultan, and by extension of his authority, she has authority so that when things start to get a little out of hand, all she has to do is throw off her disguise, demonstrate her royal garments, and like it or not, and I don't think they did, the same people who treated her poorly must bow to her, right? Because she, while she has little influence on her own, while the world looks at her and perceives that she has no real power, she has much influence and power by way of her father. The same kind of dynamic is happening here where the powerful in the world temporarily looks upon believers as those without power, but as we'll see, they'll have to bow down to the believers in the end. And we actually see that happening in the third contrast, right? Um, so we go to those with little earthly power to those with versus those who, with, with much earthly power to now seeing the false Israel, false people of God, versus the true Israel, the true people of God. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, here it is, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. This is the second time that we've seen this phrase, synagogue of Satan in Revelation together. The first time when Justin was preaching a few weeks ago in Smyrna, I'll let you go back. I commend you to do that. Go back and listen to Justin's sermon on Smyrna if you didn't get a chance. It'll give you some of the historical background of um, what was happening in this context of Jews casting out Christians. But essentially, what's happening is some of these Jews who were given an exemption, right? The Jewish people were given an exemption toward these mandates for emperor worship. And they had freedom and protection under Roman law because they'd been under occupation for so long. So this, the Jew, Jewish people were given all of these freedoms. And yet they're pointing to the Christians and they're saying, look, these Christians, they're claiming the same God. They're claiming that they follow Yahweh. They're claiming that they're people of the same scriptures. But they're not. They're actually radicals. They believe in this person named Jesus. So don't give them any exemptions. You know? They're not exempt. You should persecute them. You should, you should uh, punish them under the law because they're breaking Roman law. So they're putting them out of the synagogue in order to essentially expose them to Roman persecution, leaving them out to dry, actually kind of teaming up with the Romans and persecuting these Christians. And so Jesus says, not only are these the false people of God, but they're actually the people of Satan. Their synagogue is one that's bowed to the world. They've given in to the pressures around them. And in order to hold on to their power and, and privilege, once again we see it involves... Um, allying themselves with Rome and casting uh, Christians into Roman persecution. And so ironically, these Jewish people in Philadelphia who cast out believers in Jesus, those who claim the name of Christ, the king of the Jews, ultimately show that they're not actually Jewish because they don't recognize their king. You know, And those who are faithfully proclaiming the name of Jesus, whether they're ethnically Jewish or not, are shown to be the true Israel, the true Jewish people, the true people of God, because they proclaim the name of the king. They recognize the king. This is right in line with what Paul writes in Romans 2. Listen to this. Paul says this, verses 28 and 29 of Romans 2, if you want to come back to it later. But he says, For no one is a Jew 
who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. And then listen to how he kind of ultimately sets the contrast. His praise, the praise of, of an inward Jew, his praise is not from man, but from God. His praise is not from man, like those who set up a religion of works in which they can earn, in some sense, earn their own salvation. His praise is not from man, but rather from God, reliant entirely upon him. In other words, the true people of God aren't a certain ethnicity outward, but rather changed by the Spirit inwardly, they believe and proclaim the name of Jesus. This is why Paul writes in Romans 9, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. See, these Jewish people who cast out those who proclaim Jesus, some of them Jews, some of them not, they're casting out those who are actually truly Jewish in the religious sense. They're children of the promise. They're truly the people of God. They're truly the people of Yahweh because they proclaim the true Messiah of God who came to save them from their sins. And as a result, these particular Jews who cast, cast these Christians out of the synagogue, they cast them out, they try to shut this door, they'll one day actually bow to the Christians whom they have cast out. What's this saying? Well, uh, I do believe that there are areas in Scripture, Romans 9 through 11 being one of them, that, that really argue and prophesy toward um, something of a revival from within ethnic Israel. I do think that that's the case in various places in Scripture, and yet I don't see that here. I don't think that this passage is teaching it at all. It's not saying they're going to bow and worship to Jesus. It's saying that these Christians who are cast out it's that same theme we've been talking about for weeks now. They will be vindicated. That everyone will see in the end that they did proclaim the truth. That they indeed were the people of God. So this is a contrast between the false Israel, false people of God, who cast out Christians because they proclaim the name of Jesus, and the true Israel, the true people of God, who've been changed by their, the Spirit of God to know the true King. But what happens to those who are false? What's the outcome for those who are truly God's people? Well, this is where we see the fourth contrast in the text, trial and judgment versus protection and future promise. Trial and judgment versus protection and future promise. We see this in verses 10 through 12, but let's just initially look at 10 and 11 together. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So in light of their faithfulness to Christ, they're not just given a promise of vindication, though I think that promise of vindication is really significant. It's important, and it's a major theme in Revelation. But it's not just that promise. Actually, I think that this church is given an even more critical promise from Jesus into their own circumstances here in verse 10. They've faithfully kept 
Jesus' teaching. They faithfully kept his word. That is to say, even under pressure, they didn't jettison it. They kept it. They held it. They said, this is what I believe. So Jesus will faithfully keep them. They've kept. So Jesus will keep them in a coming hour of trial. What does this mean? Well, there are some... I I think you might have to, to a degree, with this view, but there are some who take this to be something of a central passage related to the idea of um, Christian rapture prior to a coming period of tribulation. So there are a lot of people who say, there's this period of tribulation that is to come in the future. We don't know when it's going to happen. And there's this moment where God's going to keep us out by way of rapture. He'll remove us from the earth. Um, This... The strength of this view is that I think it rightly sees at least part of what Jesus is referring to here as a worldwide trial that will occur in the eschaton in the last days. Certainly, my plea is to study the text for yourself, to read, study, pray, um, engage with the best commentaries. Here, the best arguments on all sides, not just the way that the person you you agree with characterizes the other views, but here, the best arguments on all sides then come to a decision. But my perspective here is there are at least two major weaknesses with this future rapture view of this particular text. First, I think it it reads too much into the phrase, keep you out of. So, you know, it's largely based on um, to keep you from, keep you from, this phrase in the ESV, you'll see there, keep you from. That word from can also be translated from out of, right? So the idea is that believers will be kept from this by by being kept out of, taken out of. It's based on a very small Greek root, ek, which again can be translated from out of, but historically we make all kinds of wrong assumptions when we use this word. Like for instance, ekklesia, it's another word for the church, okay? It's the first century word for church or gathering or the assembly. And there are those who say, okay, ek means out of, and lesia is the root to call, so Christians are called out of, and and it's like, well, theologically, there's some truth to that, but that's not what the word means in the context, right? Like, we, we sometimes get a little too creative in ways that first century authors just didn't handle the text, okay? Um, and I think something similar is happening here, uh, for sure, from my perspective. So, um, the idea is believers are leaving behind those who are non-believers. I think there's no question. Here's where we're all agreed This passage is talking about a trial for non-believers. If you look at this expression, earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, that's a significant term throughout Revelation. The author's going to return to it again and again, and every single time, it's actually talking about people who not only are serving and following the beast, but they're persecuting Christians. Um, They're the enemies of God. He talks about them as enemies of God. So I think this is talking about a trial for non-believers, but the idea of rapture out of it because of this Greek expression, can sometimes be translated from out of. I personally think it's reading too much in to the text. In fact, in the book of John, same author as Revelation, okay? In chapter 17, Jesus is praying for future believers, and he says this, starting in verse 14. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now you could argue, well, hang on, Jeremy, it's a different context. Jesus is praying about a different struggle, not the same hour of trial that we find in Revelation 3, and that might be the case. I'm not actually totally sure. But that's also not the point I'm making, because I'm simply pointing out that this phrase, 
keep them from. It's the exact same phrase we see here in verse 10. And yet in John, same author, quoting the same person, in John that phrase is actually, it's actually running counter to, purposefully, uh, the idea of taking them out of the world. You know, it, not only does it not mean removing them, but that's Jesus' whole point. The point is, he says not to take them from the world, but to protect them from within, to shield them. The second weakness of this view is that I think it dehistoricizes the chapter a bit. It pulls it out of, of what's happening in this specific church. I think this had first century significance for this church in Philadelphia in the same way that the 10 days of trial had first century significance for the church in Smyrna. What I mean is, it's really hard for me to imagine that Jesus is somehow saying that, he, that he's only telling the church in Philadelphia, look, because you've been faithful in this very, very specific historical setting where the Jews are shutting you out of worship in this city of Philadelphia, because you've been faithful in that, I'm going to protect you from a trial that's going to happen thousands of years from now. I have, I have a real hard time thinking that's the case. I do think there was an event from which this specific church was protected. And I happen to agree with Kenneth Gentry when he writes that as a result of the grave nature of God's judgment on Israel and its universal consequences, great disruptions reverberated well beyond the narrow confines of Israel and encompassed the entire Roman Empire in the first century. So I think it's entirely plausible, in other words, that God is promising to shield these first century believers from a first century judgment, a first century trial that continues to reverberate out from things like the Jewish wars, the destruction of Jerusalem. So I do think this is referring to a first century event, but I also think that just as the scriptures function in sort of this already not yet capacity in other places, and boy, I wish I had time to get into that, in which we see the shadow of something in history that is yet to come in the, in the future, I see that here as well. I take this phrase, I have a hard time seeing otherwise, actually, this phrase, coming on the whole world, throughout Revelation, and it'll take the book of Revelation to make my case here, but throughout Revelation, that always points beyond just the Roman world, the Greek-speaking world, to the entire created order. It signifies something that happens in the end. But just like with Philadelphia, I read no promise of some kind of rapture, but the same kind of keeping that God prays uh, that Jesus prays for God to give his people in John 17, not taking them out, but keeping from the judgment as they live in the world. And, and this is truly a glorious promise because look at the result in, in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The one who conquers, being faithful in this trial, I will make a pillar. A pillar is not something you remove, right? It's there forever, and that's the point. Never shall he go out of it, Jesus says. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Here in this fourth contrast of trial and judgment versus protection and future promise, we really see the means by which this small and weak, really puny church, at least by a worldly inventory, was able to remain faithful and keep Jesus' word to not deny his name. Why? Because they have a recognition that they're small and puny and weak and powerless apart from God in this world. They have, a, they have a recognition of their deep need for a God who can come and do everything that they're unable to do for themselves. In other words, let me ask it this way. Why do you think 
that the only two churches out of these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the only two that don't receive any kind of rebuke or warning at all to repent are called poor and powerless. Poor in Smyrna, they don't, those who are poor, though they are rich, they don't receive any word of rebuke. The powerless here in Philadelphia, they don't receive any word of rebuke. Why? Why? Jesus tells us why. The foundation for all of Jesus' teaching shows us why. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why do these inherit the kingdom? Blessed are the poor and the powerless, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, in other words, who realize their deep spiritual poverty, spiritual bankruptcy, inability to do anything for themselves of spiritual value, inability to gain the approval of a holy God, inability to make themselves truly powerful and truly rich. And who out of that deep need cry out to God for mercy. And God answers. They cry out to God to make His power known in their powerlessness. And God answers their cry. In every other instance in which rebukes are given, I'd argue. So every other instance in these seven churches in which Jesus gives a rebuke, I would argue that what you find there at its core are those who are trying to do something to save themselves out of their circumstances. They're willing to compromise because they're trying to, they're trying to engineer this themselves. They're trying to manufacture what only God can do, but not in Philadelphia. And, and their spiritual poverty, their, their recognition of their weakness, their knowledge of God's grace and the greatness of God's grace in the midst of that has apparently made them no longer care about the world thinks of them. They don't care what the world thinks. They have Christ. That's really what's happening here. So they don't deny His name. And that brings us very briefly to our fifth contrast. Those who will hear this and those who won't. Those who will hear this, those who have ears, versus those who don't. They won't hear it. Verse 13, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is how Jesus wraps up all of these different letters, wraps up all of these remarks. Something that I've wanted to talk about for a while but intentionally saved for this morning is the reality that embedded in this is the implication that not everyone will hear. Not everyone's going to hear. Not everyone will want to. And when it comes to the central theme of these seven verses, a lot of people don't want to hear it. Will you this morning? The central theme of this passage, the main point that I think the author is trying to make to his readers, the reason that Jesus is saying this to this church in Philadelphia is this. Believers are those who no longer care what the world thinks of them and instead follow his word. Believers are those, hear me, in realizing their deep need for God, in realizing the greatness of His grace and mercy in the midst of their need. They no longer care what the world thinks of them. They don't care anymore what the world thinks. They instead follow Jesus and His Word. But man, it's so easy to care what the world thinks. You know? It's so easy to be deceived into caring about earthly power and earthly wealth. It's so easy. It's so easy to think that we have no real deep need for God. So easy to plant a church and think the way that you grow is by not taking a stance on controversial issues that the world hates and only talking about the controversial issues that the world will applaud you for. Withholding unpopular opinions, 
Because nobody will want to come to church if you speak things that are unpopular. Constantly signaling your own virtue by trumpeting all the most popular opinions. Why? All because you want to be in the room where it happens. You want to have the most Twitter followers. You want to have the most likes. You want to get, you want to get those dopamine hits of all those likes on Facebook, right? All those loves of all those things that you've said. You want applause. You want recognition. You want something that the world holds out to you as applause or recognition. You want to be in the room where it happens instead of being faithful to the one who for some reason you don't think in the end will satisfy. And make no mistake, that's the reason. We do it because we're not believing the gospel. Like when I struggle with this, and I do struggle with this, when I struggle with this, when I struggle with wanting worldly power in some sense, when I'm struggle, struggling with wanting what the world holds out, in any sense, it's because I don't believe that in that moment Jesus really satisfies. I don't. There's an aspect of the gospel that I'm not believing here. But he will. And he does. And you can't manufacture what only Christ can do. You can't save yourself from your sin. You can't rescue yourself from your deepest need. You can't bring someone from spiritual death to spiritual life in a church planting context. Right? We can't do, we can't do this work. But God can do all of it. And this world can do none of it. He's our treasure. He satisfies. This world will not satisfy as a treasure. It will do the opposite. It will eat us alive. Right? So why do we care what the world thinks? Why do we care? Right? This is what enabled Martin Luther to say at the Diet of Worms, here I stand, I can do no other. When being challenged, when having to put everything on the line, being challenged by those who raised him up in his traditions, who gave him his posting at Wittenberg Chapel, coming to see that the scriptures actually spoke of a God in his great mercy who saved sinners, right, by his grace and mercy, right? not through works. Knowing that it was going to crumble his entire world, knowing he'd have to go into hiding, he says, here I stand, I can do no other. He could do no other because he knew literally he couldn't, he couldn't do it. He couldn't save himself. He couldn't do anything but speak in this way. Why, why, why did Luther speak of his God as a mighty fortress? Why does he sing of his God as a mighty fortress? Because he knew he needed one. Right? God can do all of this because he's the author of life. He came to deal with your deepest problem by way of his death and resurrection and by your union with him. You can now be free of the fear of man and faithful to his word. But you know what it takes? A constant return to the gospel of grace in which you see that Jesus is your treasure. He's not some means to a, to a fire, assurance, fire insurance end in which you, in case you've got your inoculation and you can just move through life. To, no, that's not what Jesus holds out to you. He holds out to you himself. He's your treasure. He satisfies. He goes with you. He strengthens you. He bears your wrath on his shoulders at the cross that you might know God, that you might be in union with him, that you might have him. And he satisfies. You don't need the fear of man. You have Christ. And the great source for all of this is proclaimed at the table. This is where we routinely preach the gospel to one another, that we might not forget that, that we might live into its promises. This meal